Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Lisa Siegel is an artist living and working in Brooklyn, New York. She was born in Philadelphia and received her BFA from Tyler School of Art. She then attended Skowhegan and went on to get her MFA in painting from Yale University. She's had solo shows at the Mattress Factory in Pittsburgh, LAX Art in LA, Samson Projects in Boston, the Aldrich Museum in Connecticut, White Columns in New York City, and many more. She's been in group shows too numerous to name, but a few include the New Museum, PS1, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, Artist Space, Painting Center, Art in General, and many more. Her work has been covered in Art News, Art in America, Art Forum, Time Out, The New York Times, and many others. She's won the Anonymous Was a Woman grant, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a NIFA grant, amongst others. Lisa is also the co-founder and co-curator with Nova Benway of Open Sessions, a program for artists run by the Drawing Center. I met up with Lisa at her Gowana studio, and we spoke about public art, old Soho days, gentrification, music, and our current show at Miller Contemporary. Here's our conversation. Yeah, no, it's true. But I think like the whole idea of like doing something over or even like when is enough mm-hmm. is definitely an interesting conversation. Yeah. That most artists like like when do people know that you've you know this is exhausted. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Like when to move on. Yeah. So but doing something over, like how new does it have to be? Right. You know, to kind of hold your interest. Yeah, I've been interested at I'm working on and like thinking about remixing mm-hmm. and how I mean I love remixes. Right. It's such a great Yeah. Like hand it off to someone else or they the artist like does a new version of a song and has a totally different feel. Mm-hmm. And um and I, I thought to myself, it doesn't really happen in art that much, does it? You know what I mean? Like, I feel like people aren't really taking... There's some people where it's integral to their work, where right. they're basically just mutating this one thing. Right. Like Ankawara or someone like that, who's yeah. doing the date every day. I mean, that's almost like a remix of one idea or just, you know, but I don't yeah, think people it, do it a lot. I don't know. I mean, I think like I know of, there, I know of artists who take bodies of work and then collapse them into other bodies of work. Yeah as a kind of recycling like mutate yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah it's like like a mutation r- rotation right, right right yeah i've been into that lately because i'm working on the the animations that i do mm-hmm. i'm working on like a quote unquote remix of one that i did huh. because i'll usually keep working in on them but never show the updated versions of them hmm. but this one's going far enough and different enough and then i'm having the soundtrack remix too so oh. it's but you know i was looking at a lot of picasso and um, Guernica, you know, that mm-hmm. painting and how many studies right. and drawings he did, scores and scores of these. Right. Like, you know, the woman crying with the baby, like that drawing, he did that drawing over and over and just tweaked it slightly each time. Right. Until I, I feel like. Like he pain, could have been a perfect animator in some ways. Right, right, right. yeah. And just kept moving and moving. Yeah. And then the final piece is just when that piece happened. It's not, I, I feel like it's probably 
he wasn't like this is the best version of it it was just that's when he decided to do that huh and then just moved on to something else you know huh i don't know what about your work do you do do you mutate i definitely mutate and i feel like one i don't know like because i use different materials and it feels like there's these breaks between bodies or series of work mm-hmm. but it feels like with when you're when i'm in a series it's like it keeps collapsing into itself. So it's like, how abstract can it be? Oh, how figurative can it be? Or how much hand? So it just keeps kind of questioning itself until it runs out of ways in which it feels exciting or something. Yeah, and materials too, right? Yeah. Because you have a very material approach. So I'd imagine yep. if you're working on something new, like a new material, you can just naturally right you just want to mutate things or just push it or see how far you could take it yeah totally I guess I was talking to a friend yesterday and I was talking about how like I'm always waiting until there's something you do in the studio where you're like damn what is that thing yeah right and then you're like well and of course that doesn't happen every day like here I am that would be nice it would be super nice (laughs) (laughs) but yeah but I just remember like I had been making these paintings like really wanting to think about um, painting and architecture, mm-hmm. but like using window screens as a kind of um, kind of scale of like both painting metaphor and architectural framing. And yeah. so, and I just started like painting on the window screen, and I just remember like that moment where like I put them together, and I was like, "Whoa, there's something I didn't anticipate." And right. so it was like I don't know, maybe a year or two where I, that this thing was up in my studio, and I was just constantly fascinated by it. Yeah. Did that come from when you were a kid? Were you like that? Were you just were into things and materials? Or did uh, that come out of, you know, just working and learning as an artist? Or was that something you feel uh, like when you were little, were you playing with things or creative when you were a kid? I think, you know, I was always making things and mm-hmm. making images as a kid. Um, and this is in Philly. You grew up in Philly, right? I did. I grew up in Philly. In the city or? No, suburbs. Suburbs? Yeah, suburbs. I don't know. You know, I can't actually remember that much about what I did as a child. Yeah. I mean, I remember the relationships of family, but I don't necessarily remember what I played with. Like how you spent the hours of your day? Exactly. I always wonder what Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember like, yeah, I remember, maybe I do remember making things, but it it was like making forts, making... Yeah. being outside and making tree help like it was always social like you know you're right. creating this thing you know to crawl into yeah so so maybe maybe it was that kind of moment where it's like it's mine <laughs> right right yeah like the things you get excited about yeah like we would do uh like a carnival a makeshift carnival on the front porch oh interesting where like there were games where you could win pennies right right and like i remember that being, being super excited about that sort of thing <laughs> it wasn't super creative or like art related but right it was definitely inventing yeah you know? But uh, there was a certain amount of boredom that really fed into that, That's true. <laughs> that kind of creativity, I think. That's true, yeah. And I guess that boredom is, like, hard to acquire right I, now. No, I can't, it's, yeah, I think it's different. There's yeah. not that kind of boredom. Yeah, but I think I like that boredom. Oh, yeah, it was great. Yeah. I mean, it was brutal at the time, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think... It's probably good for But us. I think, that, like, the patience in the studio to kind of allow for like really reaching like rock bottom boredom with right. you know is a way that you kind of find your way out of it. Yeah. So unless unless people who didn't grow up in that circumstance have a different toolbox to get 
to that same place. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. where they're just so stimulated that they sift out of it or they take it all in. I don't know. I'm trying to understand that dynamic because it's hard when you, I feel like you get wired in a certain way. Yeah. And then you, all the problems that arise or all the challenges, you go back to that toolbox and you go back to the way that you were wired. Right. And you think that's the only way to do things, but obviously it's not because people have changed over time. But yeah, I don't even know about the, like the, this idea of being wired. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think that it, every for me, it's more like um, the experience uh, experience of like knowledge that comes to you through process, maybe. Right. So yeah, yeah. Like like that. Like I don't feel like I was wired to do this as a child, mm-hmm. but um, but because I'm attentive to my own process and how I respond to things in the world. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what it is. It's like a, like really being a respo- responsive. Like yeah. I'd rather have a conversation than do a lecture. Right. Like that's the worst, you yeah. know. Like you're sitting in an empty room like it only like somebody would like hold their hand up, you know, and go, excuse me, you know. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say something and then you could really respond in a real way, yeah. you know. So I feel like like that is something I wouldn't have known right. when I was, you know, in second grade and I was making drawings and, you know, that was my idea of being an artist. But it's just like an unconscious pattern of experiences. Exactly, right? yeah. And just being like very astute and very sensitive to like, oh, this is interesting. And maybe this is the thing that I do that just that leads me somewhere where I wouldn't necessarily think to go. Yeah. God, even when they try to do conversations now, like panel conversations or something, it's... Oh, they fail. It's so forced. It is so forced, and it's like, I don't know, maybe a good moderator can really kind of tease those threads yeah. together. Loosen up. Loosen everyone. it up, right, yeah. so that you could, like, you know, so that you could actually really respond to each other. Right. But I almost feel like you have to be at a table having dinner. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's something different about anything done in front of a large group of people. Yes. Imagine making your work every day if you came in here and there were 50 people in the back sitting on chairs watching you. Right, yeah, that, that wouldn't quite work. <laughs> <laughs> be awful, wouldn't it? It would be totally awful, yeah. My daughter always wants to just come to my studio and sit. And hang out, yeah. And hang out, and I'm just like, I don't, you know, I think I, I have to do some stuff. You know, I just yeah, make yeah. up an excuse because it's really hard for me to imagine that I'd actually be able to concentrate on anything. I could never have an assistant. Oh, interesting. I've never. Oh, I have. I tried once, yeah. and it just didn't work. Yeah. I don't like someone being there. Right, yeah. And then I feel bad if I'm, you know how you'll sit sometimes and look for like 10 minutes? Right. Or 20 or whatever. You'll just sit there and look. What? You know, how do you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of like, I think I'm more like you are. Like, I just talk a lot. Yeah. Like, so I feel like I need to entertain somebody right, who's right, in my yes. studio. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm paying them and I'm entertaining them all day. That's I'm exhausted by the end of the day. Yeah. I've like given them everything. And like, yeah, it's really hard. But I guess if I'm working on a larger, a larger scale project mm-hmm. and it's not about like my having to really be engaged with making, yeah. it's more like, you know, today we're going to, you know, churn out this stuff, right. you know. Yeah. And get I to get, work. get to work. Yeah. And I guess, you know, no, and I do find that interesting. Yeah. Well, that's what the basement's for. You just stick your daughter down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Get like yeah. a game console. I mean, there's Wi Fi probably, right? Isn't there? That's all yeah, yeah. That's all they need. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah. when, when you were growing up in Philadelphia, when did you first start getting into art? Or, or did, were you taking it in high school? Like, 
I was I oh. actually I was the kid that you know my second grade teacher Miss Valier said to me oh you're the best artist in the class oh really you got yeah. the early accolades I was you know totally like that's me yeah. you know that's my identity and so I guess from at least second grade on that was who I was it's amazing how early reinforcement or the feeling of like oh I'm good at this yeah how that can really play an effect on your future you know totally and I just well I don't know everyone comes to it in a different way for me it was definitely a way to escape mm-hmm. like I just love drawing that's all I did yeah and and so I guess you know then you get the af- affirmation from people around you that oh you can do this right and then, and then of course, it creates its own limitations in some ways. Yeah. But um, but the love of it combined with the affirmation. Yes. Because like when I was in school, I was good at science, so I got the affirmation for that. And then I started college in pre-med, but I didn't have the love for it. Right. So I was just doing it because my teacher was like, this is AP, you're doing really well, you got to go do this. Right. But the art class that I was in in high school is where I had the most fun. Right, you know? right. Which is really the great fork in the road in life, right? Yes. Yeah. Fun versus responsibility. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a lose-lose. <laughs> the hard road, the hard road, or, you know. It's true. It's, I, but I feel like if you have something you love, why not be miserable doing that than being miserable doing something that just pays the bills? Hmm. That's right? That must be what you tell your students. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's gonna it's gonna be hard either way. So yeah. you might as well be chasing something you really love. I think you just you're an artist because you have to do it. Yeah. I mean, and anytime I've taught, and you know, people are like, I don't know, I don't know what to major in, psychology or art, and I'm like, this that's not, easy. Yeah, yeah. That's an easy one. There, you've you just already answered yeah, your own just, question. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And is that a bad sign that they can't recognize <laughs> yeah. that they're answering their own question? Exactly. Psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you knew, or I mean, did you know, like in high school, you were doing art, you were loving that. I mean, did you know, okay, I want to go to school for this. This is what yeah. I'm going to do. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's what I've done forever. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess, I mean, at this point as an adult, I'm like, why did I do that in such a limited way? Like, I would, I don't recommend that people go to art school. I mean, yeah. I think it's, it's not a waste of time, but I just feel like I can see how, you know, you don't have a broad enough education. Right. So... Like most things, it's like, you know, you, you become an autodidact. You just learn what you need to learn. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so maybe it's much more of a, it's much more idiosyncratic, like what you can refer to within your kind of, within, for, for content in your work even. It's right. just that you follow what interests you. Yeah. And then that opens up. But maybe, you know, that, I think that's the way I've always learned. Wait, so where did you go to school? At Tyler. Oh, Tyler. Yeah. So you did go to art school. Yeah. Yeah. I never went to art school, so I can't. Well, you're smart. (laughs) (laughs) That that wasn't an educated decision. (laughs) That was kind of, you know, I went to undergrad for, it was Penn State, and that was my state school, and it was a good school, you know. But I didn't even know I was going to, I mean, I loved art at that point, but I didn't know I was going to major in it. So I figure, well, this is a good big school. It's a state school. I'll do that. But yeah, I can, I've always imagined that art school would be a little limiting or just kind of, you know, narrowed in, I yeah. guess. Yeah, Well, I spent two years in Rome, and that was sort of oh, like yeah, why the Tyler. I went, That's why I went to Tyler. Yeah, that's a good program, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, come on. You get to go. That's a good great. gig. Yeah, yeah. That, was a good, <laughs> that was a good gig. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. You, that probably affected you. 
completely forever. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you see so much. You see that's so much. Not in Philly, exactly. And Philly has a lot of great stuff in it. Yeah, yeah. But I guess I just didn't even understand, like, as a teenager, what it means to be an artist. I mean, Philadelphia is a pretty conservative city. Yeah. And the academy is very big, and so I think, you know, by the time I got to Tyler, I I had certain kind of ideas about modernism, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. or contemporary art, but not I I hadn't really studied it very closely. So it was Rome like a deep, more historical relationship? Totally. It's not like the art history book relationship. It's like the no. oh my god, this is in front of me relationship, yeah. which I didn't get until much later. Yeah, no, absolutely. that hits different. I remember you know going to Notre Dame for the first time, and it's like oh my, like now I I see why people were in awe of this. You yeah, know? It's yeah, amazing. It's yeah, it's it's completely amazing, and just to kind of be um, completely immersed in. You know, all these different kinds of, um, you know, painting on walls, painting in churches. It's like, it's so kind of, it surrounds you, you know. And so I think that that was so, it was hard to go back and look at contemporary art um, for a while. Yeah. So when you went back to Tyler, how did you, what were you doing at that point? What kind of work? I was actually, I stayed in Rome for an extra year and I painted on the streets. So I, I learned how to, like... You know, I learned how to paint by being outside along the river, along the Tevere. So and plein air. Yeah, yeah, just for one, one or yeah, for a solid year, and it was like the best teacher I could ever have. Now wait, was this after you graduated, or no? Did you just I took stay? a year off. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. You, you just told Tyler, wait, hold on. Exactly. I'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is too good. Yeah, it I'm was just too good. Stay an extra year. Yeah. And they, that was cool with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty great. Yeah. So you had three years there. Basically, yeah. Two two no, school years. No, I had one school year, one year oh, on I my see. own. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And then when you got back, how was that trans? That must have been weird. To it painting was, in the streets there and then coming back to Philly. It, yeah, it was really hard. Yeah, I just remember that I was. Yeah, I found it really like everything seemed extremely artificial and yeah. all surface. So it's like because you're in the streets and you're painting light, you know, mm-hmm. in color, and it's like that the brilliance of the light and how it bounces off the surfaces and yeah it was just really I don't remember what I made when I got back but (laughs) it was definitely a different way of like retuning to the kind of grittiness the grittiness of of what it means to actually be an artist then right you know yeah so I mean do you were you close to graduating when you came back you probably have one more year right yeah yeah so you just made your final work and then... Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because I think that the, the plein air paintings mm-hmm. is still part of my practice. Because you're looking. You're out looking. No, right? I actually sometimes paint plein air. Yeah. 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 I mean, if I'm... Like you're literally out there I'm working. Literally, like I did a, a large um, piece in New Orleans for mm-hmm. the... Not for this biennial, but for the last prospect. Uh-huh. And so I... I did what I do sometimes, um, which is I wanted to be able to really think about and experience what it, like the architecture, especially the empty architecture and the kind of, I don't know, the complexity of it. And so um, I just didn't feel, and I didn't want to just like go there with a camera and shoot photographs. So I went there and and painted different kinds of houses. In fact, I found one. What scale were you on? 
small, yeah. like small plein air paintings. But mm-hmm. I decided that I was like the extremes that I would go out and paint um, outside of a prison mm-hmm. because, of course, um, uh, Louisiana houses more uh, <laughs> inmates than any other state, I think, in the country. Yeah. Um, and then I painted. Where else? Oh yeah, I painted. You know, most of the public housing mm-hmm. um, had been emptied during Katrina, and it they were taking down a lot of that public housing. So they were either brownfields, or they were like in the process of being demolished. Yeah. So I was outside of one of them in Lafitte and painting, and it was just amazing because it's performative. Right. It's performative because it's like I'm not painting there to show that painting. Right. I'm painting there to, to have an experience. Yeah, to, to have yeah, that yeah. firsthand. Yeah. It's amazing, right? I never, you know, it took me a long time before I started working in the public realm, but mm-hmm. that is the big, for me, the big plus. Yeah. It's like the engagement with community, like who you're talking to on the street and, oh, it's you completely know, amazing. it runs the gambit of the kind of people or the kind of conversations you have that never happen in a gallery. Never. No, no. And I guess when I was painting outside the public housing, there was an archaeologist who was on site mm-hmm. and he was you know, kind of respectful and stayed back for, you know, two, three hours. And then at the end he came up and, you know, we were talking and he, he said that he was there because as they were demolishing these buildings, they um, were also digging up because there was a cemetery right behind me. Mm-hmm. And so they were looking for bones because they were thinking that the housing was built on top of cemetery. Oh, so, and then he brought out these maps that were old insurance maps. And so you could see that the era of building right, right there was kind of mapped out all the way back to Storyville, which is like, you know, each kind of, um, like, there were transparencies that were laid on top of one another. Mm-hmm. So this, like, the, sto- the era of Storyville was when prostitution was sort of legal in New Orleans. So yeah. you could see that the structures were so small. Basically, the structures that were mapped out were the size of a bed. Wow. And, they, and they were labeled, too. It's like white prostitute, black prostitute, Asian prostitute. It's like all on this map. And then, you know, and then you like pass through several kind of eras Mm -hmm. of land use and until you get to the present. And you can really navigate the history based on that. Yes. Yeah. So you're like, you're out there painting, um, you know, an observation of something that's unfolding in front of you, which is screwed up as well. Mm -hmm. Meaning like they're taking down a building that's actually fine. Yeah. To, to, and it's like, I mean, I'm not. Development. The, yeah, it's like there there was the emptying out of the poorest of poor mm-hmm. in New Orleans and that there would be no return right. after Katrina. So it's um, so you're kind of witnessing this moment. And then, you know, months later when I was back there for the biennial, it didn't exist. <laughs> you mean that? That the structure I had painted. Oh, yeah. It didn't exist. Was it like a target? No, I think, <laughs> no. I, I think no, it was just empty fields. Oh, okay. And they're going to rebuild like... You know, some portion. I think it was only forty percent of the housing came back. Public mm-hmm. housing came back, so that's a big population you're missing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so I guess like that. That to me was just like, what kind of you know? You would never have that experience like doing research, right? You know, quotation yeah. marks research. Yeah, in no, your studio, you, you learn. A yeah, diff- whole different, whole different thing. Yeah, and you know, when people walk by and tell you their stories and. It's kind of great, so that yeah. you know when you when you do kind of 
let things percolate, you know, that way, it's both, it's experiential. Right. You know, so then, you know, and it's a, it's a comfort of being in the street. And I think it definitely comes back, goes back to that time when I was painting on the street in Rome. Yeah. So you learned that kind of process in a way. Yeah. Even if it was unconscious, because I'm sure painting in Rome was a different, you know, cultural and sociological Oh, completely. Vibe than New Orleans. You know? Yeah. But you learn of, you know, about working outside the studio. Yeah. Yeah. So is it, was it hard? Or well, not hard, but I mean, is it like a nice balance to go between working in the studio and then doing projects like that? Is it something you're still, you know, continuing or thinking about as you're working inside? Like, oh, I'm going to work on, hopefully I'll get this project or. No, you, it's, it's not about getting a project, but it's actually because, um, because I stopped painting on canvas, mm-hmm. and I guess for years I was doing things that responded to to spaces, yeah. architectural spaces, um, the way they were built, um, kind of peeling back the layers of things. Um, and I guess I've uh, that kind of um, responsibility mm-hmm. to to a place makes it. Uh, makes the consequences or makes makes working in the studio feel like there's a different kind of um, responsiveness that I need to have. Right. So I guess I'm I'm looking for the conditions of something. I'm looking for something to set the terms rather than my taste. So um, so I think that I learned that from working outside of the studio. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but the the project that I'm working on in New Orleans and continue to work on because it's been three years now since the last biennial, and I did a project called Home Court Crawl, mm-hmm. and the project, I mean, I guess because I was, I really wanted to respond to the number of empty houses that vacant houses that exist in New Orleans. I think there's like thirty to fifty thousand of them. That's a lot. Yeah, and some of most of them, there was a, a large percentage of them that were empty before Katrina, and so you know for the biennial, I wanted to do something, but I didn't want to aestheticize the houses, so um, I I asked a friend of mine who's a playwright if I could use her one act plays, who's in Laurie Parks, she's mm-hmm. an amazing playwright. If um, she wrote three hundred and sixty-five plays, one play a day. And there's like the uh, the the kind of um, the content of these plays was so amazing. They almost felt like, and the, you know, people were speaking in vernacular. It felt real, you know, and it felt like the um, the kinds of subject matters um, felt like they could be the voice of these empty houses because the, because themes of reoccurring like um, racial issues or you know just constant ways in which somebody finds that they're that they're just thrown to the ground again you know and so um i don't know the the, the voice they felt perfect they felt perfect Man, so how the the volume of that is amazing just in and of itself yeah yeah how do you do that <laughs> wait the volume of what like 365 oh how do you choose which ones or just doing that many oh yes impressive yeah yeah i mean some of them were you know she was writing like one play a day you know, and and so some of them are like one one sentence. Yeah. You know, so they're like really like haikus. You right, know, right. and so I wanted to use the text because I think, 
and with, with stage direction. Mm -hmm. And so I chose four plays, and each play would be, would be fractured um, and would be pasted onto a blighted house through a neighborhood. So um, you'd have to kind of create, it would create its own kind of derivate through, through a space that you might not actually go to, you know, ha necessarily like find yourself right. in unless you were looking for something. Yeah. And so, um, and so the plays were empty, um, which I, we did in Hollygrove and Burning, which we did in Mid-City Treme, and um, I can't help the mood I'm in, but the narcissism of white America knows no bounds in uh, the Seventh Ward. And the last one we actually couldn't put up, but it was called um, Lights Rats. Um, but it was like over 30 houses that we worked on, four different neighborhoods. And the process was just because I'm not from New Orleans and I did not feel comfortable just assuming that that would be cool with anybody. Yeah. Um, it was you know, a question of really kind of working with people. Um, and you know, it was like fair housing, you know, people who are working with fair housing, you know, meeting local artists, my, you know, met with um, my partners, um, who um, Imani Jacqueline Brown, who is a cultural activist, and Carl Joel, Joe Williams, who is um, uh, an artist. And so we just started like intentionally figuring out what would be the best way to kind of collect voice, you yeah. know. And because we were putting voice onto these houses, what was the purpose of that? Right. And so, and because so many outsiders have come in and you know tried to to do things with with the houses, especially in these kind of international biennials, I just felt like there had to be some way to do something that would feel um, like it should be done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Not definitely. just like I had the assignment. You know, or like the drive by. Yeah, know, exactly. I'll just put my two cents in, but actually connecting it to exactly. Yeah, and I guess you know because I had been working in the studio. Um, and thinking about the ways in which you know illusion and painting and architecture, ephemeral architecture, mm -hmm. come together, but in a metaphoric way, to then be out on the streets and have to kind of um, respond to people's lives, you know, and so it just felt like it took on a different kind of um, the proportion of of what could be said or what what's real, you know, yeah, just. It was a very different conversation, right? And so, like, when you when you're talking to the neighbor <laughs> mm -hmm. about what it's like to live next door to a blighted house and why it's like that and why there's so many on them, you know, nobody could get them, and so um, you know, working with uh, you know, partnering with community land mm -hmm. trust there, partnering with um, uh, Joe Mitchell Foundation with the national. Uh, what is it? the minority the national minority um, architects association and just like all different kinds of people who have expertise so it's like how can we learn from each other about why there is this kind of issue about housing that cannot be solved right and so it's been an incredible learning experience and all that was kind of born out of the seed of just going out and painting from life in a way right in some ways it was it yeah. was just like I cannot I cannot um, ethically 
kind of come here and, and do something that feels like a gesture that would benefit me as the author. Right. In fact, you know, authoring it was not the point. Mm-hmm. The point was to actually step back and say, I don't understand. <laughs> right. Like, why is this the condition of this place and so many other cities? You know, like in, yeah. in which, no, no, but it, it can be, you know, like, you know, displacement and debt, you know, and yeah. the ways in which, you know, housing inequities, you know, really kind of create, I don't know, I, am, I almost think about these blighted houses as like monuments to racism, yeah. institutional racism. Right. Yeah, they're left over, they're old buildings that just hold on, you know, and a lot of the, it kind of forces architecture, it's, it's really interesting how architecture can sort of define the way we live our lives, you know, like the spaces that we're around say a lot about who we are and like why certain places exist, why certain buildings exist. I mean, in New York, it's all around us. You yeah, know? completely. Yeah. So I guess, you know, from from that experience, I just feel like I'm so interested in peeling back those layers and trying to figure out, well, what what is happening and whether that's like in some, you know, on a more like structural level or whether it's like really material, material in the studio. It's sort of like you kind of like you set the equation and then how can you fulfill that when it's just you and your studio Mm -hmm. making the decisions and how can you kind of shrink it so that you could actually have kind of a subtle and textured conversation with um, materials that speak about, you know, migration or circulation or displacement or any number of things, you know, that that come up. Um, But it's... But and but I think you know like working outside or working on these larger projects, um, it gives you it gives me more freedom in, in some ways in the studio. Mm-hmm. Sort of yeah. like oh there could be this way in which my my activism or my agency as a citizen <laughs> right. is played out, and so I'm relieved of that mm-hmm. in the studio. But then you see how all of those ideas kind of filter back in because right. that's what you're thinking about. But they can be tangential, or they can be abstract in a way, yeah. and that's fine. It's like, yeah, I mean, I think that's a space there. you need, yeah. you know, in order to like to have the freedom to experiment without it being propaganda, right? Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I, you know, you understand that clear difference, yes. right? Like once you say this is, you know, for a purpose, this is in service of this right. idea, you know, and and making images or making art doesn't necessarily do that. Yeah. Or some does, but, uh, you know, not the work I'm doing. I always felt that way about, you know, you know, having friends who are super straight edge or punk rock. You know, like when it gets to the point to where you're just advertising your ideology and what you're doing, it, it, the purpose changes. It just becomes a, a totally different thing yeah. than actually, you know, kind of taking this micro approach to making changes and doing things personally, right. which can have a much more profound effect, I think. It's slower, it's quieter, but it's probably a lot more effective. Yes, end, yeah, you know? exactly, right. Like, how could you be mo- the most effective in your life? Right. Right. Yeah. It certainly wouldn't be sitting in your studio thinking of thinking metaphorically about something. <laughs> right. You know? Although there's, there's few people who are really good at that sort of thing. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Right. And that's, I don't know if maybe generally artists, that's their, you know, uh, primary mode of communication. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, Maybe a writer or an activist might have a little more of a direct route to that. Yeah. I mean, I think we probably try to celebrate a little more of the fuzzy edges yes. of, of what we're saying. Yeah. Which is kind of why we're not speaking, you know, or writing. Yeah, or there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's room in, 
things that aren't speakable. Yeah. Yeah, so, and they, 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 you know, they go over the boundaries of language, yeah. you know, which is nice. Yeah. Like anyone can look at something. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So going back to when you, so you graduated from Tyler, mm-hmm. and then what did you say to yourself? Uh, I, I need to leave Philadelphia. Yeah, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here. Yeah. So um, I moved to New York on my own. Uh-huh. And What year was that? Do you remember? Yeah, of course. It was 85. A different, different feel. Yeah. In 85. Yeah. I mean, it's before my New York time. But yeah, completely. Yeah. Well, it so must have been a little more rough around the edges, I would imagine. It was very rough around the edges and very cheap. So yeah, I basically was able to, like, waitress like two shifts a week and live on that and you know persuade somebody on Prince Street that you know I should live with them right. <laughs> in their big loft right. you know and have a painting studio in their big loft and just kind of you know I don't know move around a lot and you know you're just on your own really well how do you feel about that because you know there's the those were the days yeah when you can actually where creative people could actually afford to live here right and be creative and not just you know drown under the day job or whatever it is right but the city is a lot safer it's a lot you know easier in a way you know I mean how do you feel about the change yeah I mean I don't want to I don't romanticize that time mm-hmm. I mean because I was I mean like Gordon Meta Clark's you know had food open on Spring Street that you know a restaurant so it was sort of like Soho wasn't quite what it is now yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know but it, I mean, it was not, um, it wasn't industrial. Yeah. It had already changed over, you know, to artist lofts and, and to food, you know, right. nice coffee shops yeah, and, yeah. and food, right. you know. And so, um, but we didn't have to work. Yeah. You know, we could have, we could have the time and the space to kind of make the things you needed to make and live your life so I mean that was very real yeah. and we were I was in Soho for God's right. sake that's yeah. crazy there's space there there was space there <laughs> you know I was in Manhattan for the first year yeah and then I moved to Williamsburg in, on the south side and there was just no 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 artists there at the time but yeah, I mean that the south side was shitty when I got there and that was the late 90s so I can't imagine what it was like back then it was it was Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely interesting. Colorful. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, it, it was, uh, I don't know. There was, you know, definitely a lot of drug trafficking on my street. Yeah. But Where did you live? On South 2nd. South 2nd. Yeah. It's pretty north, you know, for the south side. Yeah, yeah. You're not, like, deep. No, no, not deep into it. But, you know, it had, it had, it wasn't altogether safe, let's put it that way. Right. You know, and I had my own experiences there. But, um... What was I going to say? Uh, was south of Broadway Hasidic community back then? Yes, always, it was. Yeah, yeah, always has been. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I didn't really know anyone, so I think, and I didn't really understand what my like what I was bringing to the South Side, mm-hmm. moving there as a single artist. I had no sense of who else was there. Well, yeah, what brought you there? Just a place? You Just found the spot? cheap rent. Yeah, cheap rent. So um, and I could afford it, and I could have a studio in my apartment and share it, like, it with somebody. Was it word of mouth or newspaper? Or? I don't remember how I found it. Maybe a friend of a friend. Yeah. friend of a friend. Um, and then... You, ju- you just Googled it? 
Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember how I found it. But, I mean, it's interesting because it's like you were just, lo- you know, I was just looking for space, right? Like other, like all artists. And then, you know, how many years later, I guess early 90s, you can see how one artist actually impacted that that whole area. Yeah. And she's like, you just, I didn't know that that's what I was doing. But I was definitely part of some larger kind of sense of, you know, turnover and of, you know, displacing people, you know, who've yeah, lived their cool. long-term residence. And it's like, you that doesn't occur, that didn't occur to me. You know, I don't know if I just had my head in the clouds, but I just didn't see that what, what you know, somebody like me, who's mm-hmm. not, who didn't grow up in that neighborhood, what I would be doing to the kind of the the culture yeah. of the, of that area. That's an interesting topic because it's kind of coming up lately. I don't know if you've been reading about the L.A. whole thing with I have. gentrification and yeah. all that. And it's like, so you came to the neighborhood and you're effectively you're changing a neighborhood, yeah. I guess, in a way. But yeah. is that neighborhood, and I'm just thinking about it, it's like, well, isn't, I mean, maybe, albeit slower in the past than, today of course because of the way everything sped up right but neighborhoods are always kind of changing aren't they and this is i'm saying that as a i'm not like pro gentrification i'm just right. curiously asking the questions like well people were migrating around and moving into communities it's not like you know like say the puerto rican community and what in you know south side or you know north side and south side of williamsburg was there forever Right, and were people moving in and out, or did they own that community? I mean, that's devil's advocate as far as gentrification goes, but I don't know. I'm curious about that because the artists a lot of time get the blame for being the gentrifiers, you know, because they come in and there goes the neighborhood. But it's not the artists really who are doing that. It's the you know the real estate and the coffee shops and all the things that follow the artists. Right, but I think that I mean my my. I feel pretty strongly about it. Is mm-hmm. I th- I think that the artists have to understand that they're the pawns in the situation. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so you know, if developers are looking for for the next spot in which you know things will turn around, mm-hmm. is that you know artists have to understand that we need to kind of push for legislation, you know, for because we for are spaces. Part, you know, yeah, for subsidized spaces for both living and for producing culture, yeah. because that's what the city is about. But you know, but you're right. You know, Williamsburg was kind of historically Jewish and Latin. You know, and so for years, and you know, I don't know if people people probably didn't own. Right. And if you don't own, then once and there was probably lots of debt, and there was some, there was vacancy. Yeah. So that's indications that things are going to turn around. Yeah. So I, I actually don't think that artists are off the hook. I actually think that we have more mobility. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think that, you know, other people don't have as much resource to be able to say, well, I could just pick up and find another spot. Right. So, but then again, it is New York, and right. where do you go? It's not like yeah. there's some uncharted territory that's not. Like, if you're right. a, a young artist at that moment, like right. where you are, yeah. do you say, well, I'm going to go to Beacon or I'm going to go to Philly because I don't want to taint the true neighborhoods of New York and ruin the culture there? Well, I mean, you know, the same thing happens in Philly. Right. Right? But, I mean, that's that. my point is, is that people are constantly moving. Like, you yeah. have to... 
if you're a cre- it doesn't matter if you're a creative person. Look, if artists don't do it, you know, uh, a Wall Street broker, someone's going to move somewhere eventually. And, and like people move around and things are going to change. Like New York City, money is flooded into New York City. I don't think that happens only because artists are moving around. I think that's going to happen right. anyways. Yeah. So are artists really to blame? No, they're just the ones who are going to go move out to an industrial space because they need a place to make work and they don't get care if it's nice or not. You know what I mean? And then right. that's, everyone follows that, I guess. But you know what I'm saying? Like, where do you move? Like, how do you, if you want to be like a conscious there uh, is citizen a, who cares about the culture of New York City. Yeah, like, I, I agree. I don't think that there's an answer of like, this is the spot you move to. Right. <laughs> there isn't. There is no space. You know, Crown yeah. Heights, Bed-Stuy. I mean, all of those neighborhoods are now flipping as well. Yeah. So, I and mean. And they all have an identity. Every neighborhood yeah. has an identity. Yeah, they do. There's and, no, like. And they did. And so right, right. they will not, you yeah. know, in the future. And I think that, you know, the point is that, yeah, as artists, you, I think that, you know, the more the more ways in which you learn to kind of maneuver and, and work with kind of community groups in yeah. order to kind of create safe spaces that, you know, people can hang on to, you right. know, through community land trust or whatever, you know, it just feels like there's, you know, there's, if, if everyone just acts like this going to happen anyway, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it's true. There, there, is, there will no, they'll, we'll just keep pushing people further and further out right. outside of urban areas. Um, so yeah, but artists are getting pushed out too. No, know? of course, yeah, I, we're all getting pushed out. So all I'm yeah. saying is that it would be interesting, you know, if people actually work together, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like you, you know, the, and there's ways, to, you know, in which you can be more um, walk lightly. You know, it's right. like you know, if you're going to move to Harlem or you're going to move to a neighborhood that you didn't grow up in, you're really going to open up an art space. Yeah, you know. I mean, that seems to be like a big gesture towards, you know, gentrification. Right, yeah. So just, you know, understanding that you're, you might not be welcome or yeah. you might actually be changing the demographics of a place in a way that you are responsible for. Right. And so knowing that, now we can't say we don't know it. Right. And there is a big difference between a, a person who's not making much money and looking out in an industrial neighborhood deep into Brooklyn or something to find an industrial space to make some paintings in. Yeah. And they go to their studio and then they go home or whatever. And then going and opening up like a gallery, coffee shop, artist run, whatever. Yeah. It's different. You it know? is different. Yeah. It is different. Yeah. So I think, you know, you kind of can walk lightly. But, you know, I, uh, somebody I had met in New Orleans, you know, she was talking about, you know, when you, when she said, when you move out of your mama's house, you're, that's it. You're the problem, yeah. you know? And yeah. so we're all on the move. So you're right. You know, it's not like, you, if, if you're pointing fingers and people become defensive, right. you know, like in Boyle Heights, like that's the culprit, yeah. you know, this one space, this one artist. I mean, it could be the pivotal moment in which things are turning and that, that's an easy symbol, you right. know? I don't think it's a coincidence, though, that, you know, with the with the way the technology is kind of maybe bridging a lot of gaps and fracturing spaces, like kind of conceptual spaces, mm-hmm. and the communication is changing, people's relationship to space and each other is getting closer, or, right. you know, those changes are happening. It makes total sense that 
architecturally, you know, as far as like urban planning or spaces are going to do the same thing in a way where people are just going to start moving everywhere, moving around and these right. kind of like old cultural, like Williamsburg is the Italian American neighborhood. Like that's just, right. even people who are there are going to be moving around more and people are flying around more and people, you know, so I wonder too, it's that age old um, question of like the purity of things. You know what I mean? Right. It's kind of like, you know, like certain people live on an island nation and they don't want foreigners to come in necessarily. Right. Is that a good or a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're interesting questions and maybe that's why I wanted to learn about these issues in New Orleans because yeah. the culture is very specific right. <laughs> yeah. and and celebrated as such. Yeah. And so it just seems like even more of a contradiction for this kind of globalization, this kind of like influx and you know merging of culture you know it's like the celebration of new orleans and then also kind of the erasure of it right you know and so i think that you know in new york it is a very it is a different conversation like the level of development yeah and the kind of flip of things you know it's that is what is probably not to sound pessimistic an unstoppable force it is it does feel like an unstoppable force It, it does and so that's why you know yeah, exactly. And so that's why working there and trying to learn about these kind of alternative models to capital capitalism and development. Yeah. You know, feel like there there is kind of an opportunity right to kind of understand what role, you know, we can play. Yeah. I mean, I I it's the reason I'm talking about it so much is cuz I find it so interesting because Me too. I feel the yeah. same way you do yeah. and like you know, I came here at a certain point and moved into a certain neighborhood and that neighborhood really changed, you know, and and I feel a certain kind of like sadness and fondness for areas that have this cultural identity or to have a very specific um, history to it and that dissipating or diluting. Yep. And then at the same time, I feel like we are changing as a people, not just in the spaces that we live in, but also the way we interact socially and through technology. And it's just, you know, like I listen to an album on vinyl and I think it's very romantic. And it's like, this is the way you're supposed to listen to music, the crackle, like right, the old, right, you know. And right. then I listen to Spotify and I'm like, this is amazing because I'm listening to a band from like Mozambique right. that I never would have heard before. So right. it, there's the pluses and minuses. And I feel like, yeah, there may be more minuses, but I think it's just people change like we're not like eventually we're going to destroy the environment eventually we're going to wipe ourselves yeah <laughs> it's just yeah it's sad and i pine for the days not but then there were a lot of things that happened 200 years ago that were pretty shitty that we've been able to move past because communities have diluted or, or not diluted but you know integrated or mixed together right and there isn't that you know strict identity of like oh, we're this people. Like, I kind of like the graying out of people to where ethnically people are just mixing together in a wonderful way to where it's there's like a celebration of not knowing that or, or that it's not just I am this. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think there's a beauty in that too. Maybe we're just changing and like just in the same way that New York is it's undeniably changing and shifting like maybe society is doing that too and like we can't really stop it it's just right the way you know like when they clone something with like a person or a or you know like an animal and you're like oh shit that you know that's <laughs> we just crossed the bridge right. that you know no matter what right ethically no back. Yeah. I mean it's just that's what we're gonna do yeah like we're 
destined. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. It's interesting. I didn't realize you were such an idealist. <laughs> <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I appreciate op- the optimism of it, and I do appreciate thinking about, like, as people, you know, human nature is, you know, there's a lot of goodness. Yeah. You know, and so I feel like there is a way in which to kind of, I don't know, think through some of these issues and not just hold, I, I actually feel like, you know, you know, the idea that it's all happening mm-hmm. and we have no agency um, feels like that's a cop-out to me, you know. That, yeah, well, you I know. think it's in the same way, like like I was talking about before, the micro changes, right. I think, are the best. Because you can't just say, oh, we're people, we can just all get together and change this. Well, not really. Like, it's scary when one person tries to change everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's better if we all kind of, like, work together towards a more positive thing yeah we're not just gonna all magically accomplish something that solves everything you know what i'm saying like it's kind of like these baby steps that you try like if i'm if i go outside the door today and try to be nice to someone when i'm crossing the street instead of you know you know why'd you double park in front of me that sort of whatever it is right right then maybe that makes a bigger change than some other big thing that I try to do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I yeah. guess that's optimistic. I don't know. I, 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 I find myself trying to look at the good and the bad of everything or, or like seeing it holistically right? instead of ideally. You right. know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Like yeah. you, you know, there's always going to be the plus and minus of everything. Yeah. No, there's it's totally be some good true. That comes I mean, that's actually, that's like my work is all about, <laughs> all about that, you know? Hmm. Like I, I think there's certain I don't know. There's certain pluses and minuses to every aspect of change and, you know, development or whatever it is and try to celebrate the good and maybe focus on that. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we went way yeah. far away from your work. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So you moved to New York. and So, so what were you doing uh, when you were in Williamsburg? What kind of work were you making then? Um, I was making uh, figurative paintings. Yeah? Yeah. Like um, large scale, small? Or? Um, large scale figurative paintings. From yeah. Life? No, no, not from life. Um, they were, um, and then I, I guess I was in Williamsburg for about a year, and then went to school at Yale mm-hmm. um, for grad school, and then you finally transitioned from art school to university. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. More. So you had both. Yeah, yeah. Did you like the the shift? Um, I. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually was able to take lots of other classes yeah. as well. So that Good was really too, interesting. Right? Yeah, yeah, that was great. Yeah. Um, and resources. You had a lot of resources. Yeah, there. that was completely amazing. Yeah. Um, and then came back to New York and had a different sense. I moved back to Williamsburg and then um, just had a whole different kind of sense of community. And mm-hmm. I had also gone to Skowhegan, so. Yeah, which... To people who've gone to Skowhegan know that it's the best thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, I, I mean, I wax poetic about it because it was so Yeah, great. yeah. Did you go right after grad school? I went um, right before. Oh, before. Yeah. I oh, went how before. was that? I mean, it's the only reason I went to graduate school because I was like, because I love Skowhegan so much and I was in the kind of conversation was so intense that I just felt like um, if I could do this for two years, that would be amazing. But I didn't realize it's not 
grad school is not Skohegan. It's totally, <laughs> I mean, was it then totally different? Yes, it was yeah. totally different. It was pretty brutal. Um, so, yeah. You almost got out unscathed, but then he dipped back in for two years. I know. Brutal discourse. <laughs> brutal discourse, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I don't think it actually exists in the same way that it did then. Yeah. Because it was, you know, they accepted you, and then I think then they tried to kind of destroy you. Mm-hmm. Break you down. <laughs> Break you down, yeah, yeah. It's different now, I would imagine. I think so. It's a little bit more female. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And that, that's not about kind of destruction. Right. But is it that everyone gets a trophy kind of vibe these days? Oh, no, I don't think so. You know, it's like that with yeah. other things. It's I like know it is, yeah. All the young kids are, you're all winners. Yeah. But there was something about earning the trophy that was a good thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Um, At risk of sounding like an older person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, but, yeah, it was not, um, you didn't, you, you really had to defend your position. And so, you know, yeah. I feel like as somebody who um, talks to a lot of other artists as well, I have to kind of constantly, like, pull myself back. So that oh, yeah. I'm not, I don't kind of give what I received. Like, yeah. Right. You know, to not be brutal and to understand, like, you know. Are you saying it's like being a battered student and not taking it out on your students? or No, your, or it's just others? like a certain way that you that you learned how to defend yourself. Right. So. Yeah, um, I don't know if that works anymore. I don't know if it works either. And I don't think it's the most responsible way of no. kind of, or even interesting way of having a conversation. Right. You know, it's sort of like, you know, it's you're extreme. guilty, you know, yeah. prove your innocence. Yeah, it's extreme. So You know what you know what Yale was? It was not taking your kids to to lessons where they come and then there's someone there who's like really good at it and they they ease you. This is Yale was like they bring you to the pool and they throw you into the deep end. Yeah, completely. Sink or swim, buddy. You know what I mean? That's yeah. I feel like that's the approach. It's like we're going to pull the rug out from under you. Yeah. And see if you can get up. Which can be, I mean, I've seen certain people do really well and really kind of respond and be like, it's like a wake-up call. You're like, oh, yeah, I got to get my, you know. And then I've seen other people just crumble and run away and they don't, and maybe in a way. Maybe it's a service. Right? Yeah. Survival of the fittest. Yeah, I think. I'm raising my kid in the (laughs) other model and it's (laughs) killing me. (laughs) He's going to crumble in so many situations. No, I feel like he'll have a good so, solid ego and yeah. he'll know that, you know, I can he figure will. this out. <laughs> yeah, he does. He already, I think, thinks he's figured everything out. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a big shift, right? An it ideological is. shift. It is a big ideological shift. And so I just feel like, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to have that kind of harshness either. Right. It's, so, it's acidic. It's not yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, have... Former students who've gone through that program and came out and are doing amazing work. So yeah. it's, it's not like that's the, it's not like that was the only way. No, to have the old guard. No, no, down your neck. No, absolutely not. And I don't feel like that old guard is like in my head either. Right. In my studio. It or maybe they are. Maybe they are. You know, it's sort of like yeah. you know when you're the most hard on yourself. It's like whose voice is that? Right, right. <laughs> like, is it really my internal voice, or you know, maybe actually that's something that you know was projected into right. me. You know, yeah. 
That's when you send that person downstairs That's to the basement. Right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> All those distinguished faculty yeah, downstairs. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So you graduated from there and mm-hmm. you came back. And then did you find, so did you have a big, I imagine you had a much bigger community of people than yes. when you first moved to Williamsburg. Yes. And that's important. I mean, yeah. Isn't the, that one of the best parts about like Skowhegan and grad school is that you meet all these great people, right? Yeah, I mean, those you know those people are still the people that come to my studio. Yeah. And so, you know, how many you know how I don't know how many you know. It's I don't know the the kind of luxury and um, of having a conversation that's gone on for more than you know I don't know with some people thirty years. Yeah. That's incredible. It is. You know, it's like you don't have to kind of, and then this and then that. It's like you can kind of dip in in a very deep way. Yeah. And so, um, and you know, that, that, that core group is there, and sometimes it shifts and changes. You know, you just right. you know, have more separation with some people. But it was a completely different New York then. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, maybe you don't, maybe Instagram does that for you now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I'm kidding. I mean, yeah, totally no, it's way. true. Yeah, in a very different way. Because I say to people who poo-poo grad school, you know, I say, well, you, you know, I've amazing people that I met in grad school. It was two years of real focus, right? And extreme student loan. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it yeah, was, exactly. but I mean, it was, you know, it it gave me a lot, you know, and yeah, you can get that otherwise, I guess. I mean, back then I was really shy. I wasn't a hustler. I wasn't like a super social guy. So it forced me to make connections with people, which I think was really good for me then. Mm -hmm. You know, now I could have just gone and met people and walked around, you know, but some people need that environment, I think. Right. So I don't think it's, you know, a prescribed, like, oh, grad school, who needs it sort of thing. It can be really great for people. Yeah. And then there's a lot of people who probably can do just fine meeting people and you know, and don't need that, so. Yeah, it just depends on what resources you need. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a different environment now. Yeah, you know? no, definitely. But I really do, um, I, I am still close to those people. And, yeah. you know, just thinking back on what, you know, what the, what the you know, the artists who came and how they kind of formed us, not necessarily by their influence, but right. almost like just in conversation about who those people were. Yeah. And you know what they represented, and the kind of the, the range of of perspectives. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, recently we three of us did a talk from Skowhegan about Frankenthaler because she came to visit. Yeah, and it was kind of amazing because we all I feel bad about this, but we all wrote her off. Oh really? Yeah, I mean, how could you? I know. I mean, <laughs> I just amazing. feel like what it, you know, like that we well we it was like. A combination of a few different things, um, which she came in and, you know, she had a very specific perspective on the kind of painting she did right. in an era where she was one of, you know, two women <laughs> in, it's you know, a, a large club. group of, yeah, exactly, in a boys club. And, um, you know, and basically her attitude was, you know, oh, did you ever try a mop? and you know nothing that was figurative right you know she even considered to be art right and so but it was very interesting because now that you know we have distance from it and looking back on it it was like of course she had to do that yeah 
I mean, that's how she survived. Right. Like, and that's that, what made the, her a wonderful artist. It's what made maybe her, not a good teacher. But. Maybe not, <laughs> but actually, maybe it was a good kind of way of teaching as yeah, well. Yeah. It's like, this is what I know to be the case. Right. <laughs> right. This is what I think is important. Yeah. How could I pretend to think something else is important? You yeah, know, right. and there's all, you know, we are all different, you yeah. know. You so, don't have a mop in your studio, and I don't want to be in here right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, but she did also refer to herself, like, when she was, there was some writing that we had read right before, you know, getting together to talk about her, mm-hmm. and she referred to herself as he. Whoa. Yeah, in a creative process, you know. All, like, any, you know, any time she used pronoun, he. So... I just feel like you know she had a very conflicted relationship with herself as a maker and what she could, kind of, you know, and the, also the way that you know people perceived what she was doing. But then you think about like the way in which you know those paintings still influence, yeah, artists, you know, or even myself, you know. And right. it's like, at you know, when I, we were in our twenties at Skohegan, we were all like, she's irrelevant, mm-hmm. or what she's doing or saying just feels of a time. And then you step back from it and you go, absolutely not. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, right. That's Whoops. The thing about, yeah. Yeah. Like, the yeah. education is wasted on young people. Well, like, yeah. You don't have the perspective to, to see the value in it. You're just like, well, that's that's limited or that's. Or maybe side. not. But that was a conversation. Like at the time, we kind of resolved it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and we defined ourselves by saying we reject that. Right. Right. We reject her notion. Um, and we've defined ourselves. But then. It's like then you move on and you look back and you then you kind of you kind of rethink that conversation yet again. Yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, maybe that's what's so beautiful about having these kind of long-term artist friends. Right. It's like you can revisit that and yeah. say, really, we really thought that. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're like, and look how your work is actually still kind of, you know. Strangely enough, you're thinking about Frankenthaler on some level. Yeah, it's know? amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. Thirty years later, you're using a mop, and you're like, "What the?" F-? Yeah, exactly. You're she like, was right. "It's on the floor." <laughs> <laughs> there was something there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing too to to have come up in that environment. I mean, artists like like her, like uh, Joe Bear, are amazing to me. You know, I was at the what was I the Whitney, and I saw a show card for like an, a, a show back in the 60s, I think it was in the late 60s, early 70s, and it was like, you know, Judd, Stella, like all these names, and then Joe Bear, and she was the only woman, and making what I felt like were the best paintings of the bunch, you know yeah. what I mean? But yeah. imagine that environment was not easy. Yeah. And hearing her refer to her as a him probably makes sense in the sense that she was like, you know, like masculine and feminine words. She probably just through the environment felt like, you know, making work was just a masculine thing, and she was doing it. You know, yeah, but yeah. That had to be a, a veritably impossible environment to like work in. Yeah, but also even like the critique of her shows is kind of unbelievable because they it, everything was about um, seeing it through a kind of womanly right. way, like oh, it's more lighthearted, or mm-hmm. and it it has to do with feeling. You know, it was like Delicate. it was so yeah, yeah. yeah it was so. Um, Patronizing, yeah, in so many ways, the critique still around, of this work. Sadly. Yeah, it is still around, sadly. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's just like humans. You yeah. Know, sometimes I feel like, well, it's just humans being humans. Yeah. No, it's sadly. true. <laughs> it is. It is pretty sad. Like thousands of years of evolution tied up in 
in genetic or something, you know, that's like unshakable to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, current day events. Yeah. Anyway, we don't need to go into that, do we? <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell me about like what you're working on these days and, and what you've been doing? Because I know not only you're doing your work, you're also curating too. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, um, you know, like I said, like I've been thinking a lot about the kind of the forensics of architecture, and um, so I started to make these um, cardboards and plasters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, with the the plaster pieces that I had been making, I actually wanted to kind of look at the most ubiquitous material, which is drywall. Yeah. And kind of to think about the ephemerality of the material and the way that it's really cast paper. You know, and that you could cut into it and fold it. You know, yeah. and that um, that malleability is really interesting to me, and you know, kind of speaks to a kind of precariousness. So I started to cast my own drywall, drywall sections, um, and you know, in thinking about like the, you know, what a section of dry unpainted drywall actually holds, um, and uh, the kind of I guess, you know, old drywall was made with plaster, so that's what I decided to use. But um, but it's interesting because, like, each the drywall right now, in the way that it's manufactured, the um, gypsum, which is the center of, um, and then it's cast with two pieces of paper on either side, it's actually, uh, I don't know how, I don't know, understand the chemistry of it, but there's these molecules that kind of, and during fire, emit moisture so that each level each layer of like five inch five eighths inch wall actually um, produces uh, allows for 45 minutes of time during a fire Whoa. so I thought it was kind of like amazing, amazing like to think about like this this material as kind of almost magical like yeah, yeah. like a magical barrier but it's also like but then in the opposite situation where there's water you know mm. that comes in to, you know, into a space and floods that it just kind of soaks and stains yeah. and you know kind of like material like Mold just molds and, and yeah and dissipates so yeah so I was just thinking about like the images or the surfaces or the textures that are behind walls so yeah. along with casting pieces that were like almost like standard like eight by four mm-hmm. in plaster yeah um then like kind of like pulling back or kind of, you know, having like layers of different kinds of papers um, and silk screening and, and making images within the, the, the drywall sections themselves. Yeah. Along with doing pieces that are, you know, fairly abstract. Right. Um, or, you know, actually, I, there's a piece in my studio that you're looking at right now. Um, and I guess this is um, when I was in New Orleans, I hadn't planned to, um, I hadn't planned to kind of marry my, my creative process with the project that I'm working on, Blights Out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started to, when I was like working on houses, to actually like kind of fold paper into the kind, into the houses yeah. and paste onto the houses and then take it off. And I didn't know what I was going to make with them. So um, after I did these drywall pieces, I started to cast those houses as well. So these are small sections of blighted houses. So I like um, this. I like the kind of um, 
range of specificity in place, mm -hmm. and then for it to, for these pieces also to be like they have no like there isn't a boundary you know that they right. actually speak to the built environment in a kind of larger way it's like hyper real in a way what do you mean by that because there's a reality to the experience of what you're experiencing brought right into the work you yes know what I mean? kind of yeah. in a way like plein yeah. air is is i mean some people would think it's a little more realism in the sense that you're looking at this and you're trying to capture that mm -hmm. not recreate it exactly but you're there's a sort of realism of looking at this and then capturing it as opposed to just an imaginative kind of like landscape or something. Absolutely, And this yeah. is even more in a way, it's like getting rid of the illusion. Right. And it's just the, the realism of material and, and the place. And, well, know, it's also one-to-one -one scale. So yeah. that the way in which you kind of, you as a viewer kind of look at this piece and then experience it, it's like you can see wood slab. You could see a scale that, that kind of... Uh, Kind of places you in the in relationship to structure right. that you know. Right. So you're right. I mean, it is very much like that. Um, the kinds of the kinds of ways in which plein air works when it really works for me mm -hmm. is when you actually are kind of the, the sponge or the conduit yeah. for something outside of yourself. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Well, when people look at you making a plein air painting, though, there's that kind of tickle of seeing what you're looking at and seeing how you're recreating it. You yes, I mean? yeah. You lose, I would imagine you lose that in a sense with this in a contemporary art gallery because it's a different audience probably and they're not there at the scene. So how do you navigate the difference of interpretation of when you're actually there doing it and then someone who maybe went to art school, they're running around the galleries and they see your show and they see that piece. They don't. They might not know that at all, unless you yeah. have that written out. Or right, it might become part of the title. But my my contention would be that because um, because the the references are almost visceral, mm -hmm. that um, one could tell if that the the kinds of um, irregularities or nuance right exist for reasons of of life, <laughs> like experiential. They've been worn. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've been worn. Yeah. And so I think then the conversation kind of expands this idea of neutrality, you yeah. know, of, of the drywall surface or the wall section or the wall or image, you right. know. And so, and that I find, you know, I'm really interested in that. It's like, you know, what are you actually framing, you yeah. know, which is to me a very painting, it's a, it's a conversation between painting and architecture. Well, one thing that can happen when people get really into the location or the process or that relationship between you and the experience of making the piece mm -hmm. is that that can really become the big thing. You know what I mean? And maybe you might, um, in making the work, not you specifically, but an artist might drop out a little more of the relationship of, like, say, this to process abstraction or right, something. Right, right. Which... There's a lot of young people who are coming out of school and like, I'm going to use a squeegee or I'm going to be the guy who spray paints over wood slats or something. You know what I mean? Like a shtick of like a process-based abstraction. Right. How do you feel about work that you're making that is so tied to a specific place and experience, but then a lot of people see that and may not investigate that or, or they're, they're seeing it in relation to a lot of that process-based abstraction? Yeah. I mean, I is guess. Is what it is sort of thing? Or no, I are think. Are you interested in that? I think I'm interested in 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 context, mm -hmm. and I'm really like I actually think that 
you're right. There is a kind of problematics of uh, of something being misread, and how much uh, do you as an artist kind of create the conversation around the work? Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, I I am interested in um, in these thing in these things that I'm making in these images that I'm making existing as abstraction, mm -hmm. um, but also that they would then uh, circle back or kind of uh, in intentionally kind of you know start conversations about other issues that exist outside the studio. And so whether that's you know literally entitling or in the kind of discursive uh, you know uh, platforms in which you kind of exist in you know and insist upon so that you know, it's like we can differentiate. I'm not, you know, I'm. I have a reason to do this, and it right. comes from, you know, these ways in which I've been kind of investigating this kind of subject matter. Yeah. And not that in the end, you know, somebody who's neutral and walks in and you know might not be able to tell the difference. I'm right. not sure. Yeah. But I actually. Well, we can never control. You can't the, control that, but I actually think that um, there is a way in which an artwork actually holds that. Right. It's like the kinds of, yeah, I do think that something just, that has, it, it admits a truth, yeah. you know, and so, you know, somebody who's like cool red, right. cool yellow, <laughs> you know, that's or intent, great. intent, too. Yeah, like exactly, intent. like, you know, that's a design project. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Right. That's good. It looks beautiful. Well, it's just like in music, you can write a song that's really, you know, to you moving and emotional. Right. Some people be, might say, well, like, eh, I don't like the guitar sound, or, you know, or some people might be right, really moved right, by right. it. Right, right, right. Right, exactly. You can't really tell, you know, but I guess, you know, what what I'm saying is that I'm trying to take my taste out of it. Right. And so, you know, when you kind of cross this, when you, when you get to this point where that just looks good, mm -hmm. like, I don't find that beautiful, you know, and so I guess it's, you know, it's more a question of, um, what are the questions you pose to yourself in the studio? Right. And so, and I think that, you know, those questions are the, are, are kind of, you know, they inhabit a, a piece. Yeah. I mean, but, but that does look good. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> 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 to you, it right. looks good. Right, right. Right? right. To yeah. you, it looks good. You're schooled in a certain way. Right. You know, you, you're experiencing it in this kind of environment. To you, it looks good. Yeah. I would say that, you know, somebody who does drywall and walks in and be like, hmm, whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, whatever. Or, you know, are these cardboard pieces? You know, I'm actually, well, I don't even have them out right now, but I'll show them to you later. But I'm, I started to recast. I wanted to, again, what is an, another really common ubiquitous material, mm -hmm. which is cardboard, yeah. you know, and so um, like drywall. And it's everywhere, and basically, you know, the kind of circulation and distribution we could probably cover the globe in a kind of, you know, like a carpet of it, you yeah. know, um, which 
to me is kind of an interesting, you know, like notion, like if you think about future and production and like all things coming to an end, which you were talking about right. earlier, it's like I have like I have this vision, like the entire continent will be covered in cardboard. <laughs> and it's like you'll either like lie down on it, it'll become your bed or you'll like go, crawl underneath it for your shelter or, you know. People do use it for shelter. For, yeah. Exactly. Or, you know, it'll be your prayer mat or right. it, like, it'll become like this this surface that's so versatile. It'll even be your art. Or it could be your art. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's why I decided, you know, I wanted to make um, pieces with cardboard. So I was, I'm, I'm remaking cardboard and casting it. Yeah. So it looks like it, there's some alchemy in the material, but it's sort of like this thing that's on this table, yeah. you know, where I'll show you other pieces that are done that's not done. But anyway, it's like what happens when you use them most common material and make it into image you know and say you know and so that you kind of look at it like you enter a a painting space right you know and so and what does it hold so you know and it's you know if you just think about I don't know I I do I think about cardboard as this kind of like the most elemental way in which you kind of claim space yeah as a body right and um, and that it speaks to this kind of migration and circulation that you know, is not that is the reality of lots of people. Right. You know, throughout well, Europe and Syria, and you know, it's like, but you could just see the way that the material is like it speaks to the to it's where it's made, mm-hmm. like it's from a place, but it's also no place. Right. It's every place, and so it's um, yeah, it offers me like like I'm responsive to it, right? And what I paint on it or remake it. So these larger pieces are. Um, they're cast, they're, you know, they're laminated um, onto cast cardboard, onto like remade cardboard pulp. So I'm like hand making cardboard and making these kinds of, kinds of images on the, yeah. the surface. But to look like it's just scrap cardboard in a way, right? Are you cutting out the whole of that and cutting it to look that way? Um, no, I'm not cutting. That's Oh, so that's part of the... Yeah. The initial piece. Yeah, did. sometimes, but you know, now more and more, I'm like playing with you know this, the fold, the folds, and the kind of the parameters and the scale, and right. so you know, sometimes it's really neutral. You know, like that, you wouldn't maybe even know it, it was a box. You know, but it's a, it's kind of a splay, it's splayed like you know like a body. You right. know, and it kind of kicks up. Well, is that painted? Or is it like the result of some kind of crazy phenomenon? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. you know, like where suddenly it rained red. You right, know, right. You know, it's funny. It's perception too, because cardboard is this daily material that has no hierarchy. It's you know, it's just things packaged in it. But really, canvas and wood to make a stretcher and to make a stretch canvas. I mean, canvas we all wear clothes. Canvas is very common, and wood is everywhere too. It's just it's yeah, been elevated through history. Exactly. You know I mean? like exactly. It has, it has such a strong language. Yeah, the yeah. hierarchy is what we place on it really. And the same thing with cardboard, we kind of take it down a notch because of its relationship to how we move things around in it or whatever. But it's really just the material. Yeah. They're all just materials. Yeah, know? they're all just materials, but I think that they come with it. Yeah. Their own vocabulary. They have their own baggage. And their own markings, you right. know. So canvas actually it's totally neutral. Right. Um, and yeah, linen will always be a few hundred dollars more. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because it's and yeah. if it's Belgian, yeah, it's just like a waffle. It's worth <laughs> even. 
<laughs> it's worth even more. Exactly, exactly. So what, here's a question that I've had in my mind since we, uh, since I came in is, what kind of music do you think your work sounds like? Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. I've never thought of it as being musical. What, do you think it's musical? Yeah, of course. Really? Yes. So what kind of music do you think it is? I don't know. It's like a cross between like Autecker and like spiritualized or something. It's got this kind of structure and utilitarian coarseness to it, hmm. but then a, an ephemeral layer on top of that. Interesting. So it would be a mix of those. I'm sure if I thought about it long enough, I could find the perfect, you know, band or musician that, that or a group that this would really. I have to think about it a little more, but I didn't know if you think about that. If you, I don't think I've ever what, thought about that. Do you listen to a lot of music in the studio? Um, I listen to some music. Um, yeah, I listen to some music. Do you listen to like cold abstract electronica circa 1997? I actually don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely don't. I might listen to like music? old school Latin uh, African music. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't. But That's maybe I should. Too. Maybe I should listen to... Yeah. It's always interesting, though. I, mean, I There's so many people I talk to who I think, this person probably listens to classical, or this huh. person's only NPR. Or, you know, you, I'll have this, I'll imagine them listening to certain things, and it's totally different. I, th I think what I listen to is probably, um, the music-wise, is very incongruous with what the work is. Like, yeah. I was listening to St. Vincent nonstop yesterday. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't think that you would say that necessarily. Right. And, you know, it's a... I don't think it's a contradiction either. Right. Because in no, some no. ways it's like a collapse of all these different things. Yeah. And so you wouldn't necessarily want to be listening to the exact kind of music that is the taste of your your work. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Well, I love, uh, you know, um, I, I don't know if this is true or not. There's a story that Jackson Pollock, people assumed that he listened to like free jazz or, you know, expressive jazz because so often like people like Coltrane used or it was record covers and like there was an association of the improvisation of what he's doing to that kind of music right. you know, like Miles and Coltrane and you know Eric Dolphy people like that and like he listened to Billie Holiday supposedly oh that's so interesting <laughs> so I mean there's, maybe there's a shared pain in the voice and the struggle mm. with him you know maybe something more personal that connects that's not just aesthetic but I love that like yeah those kind of riffs between or what people listen to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be, it's so much more interesting, you know, to, to say like, you know, no, I'm only listening to St. Vincent every day, right, you know, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> while I'm making these these works. Like, yeah. where does that fit in? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting, though. It has a, it, I definitely had a feel of a certain sound. And, you know, I don't know what that is yet. I'll send you a playlist or okay. some artists. That, that, that would be amazing. That I'm thinking of. And you'll probably be like, this is, the hell <laughs> I'm not working to this <laughs> yeah I mean I guess you know what enters into your consciousness you should probably you know I should be very kind of sensitive to that because those things do enter in you know you know what yeah yeah but it, it, like you're saying 
you know, it can be real. Like if you're in here making, you know, throwing paint around and going crazy, and it's just like this very physical thing, and you're listening to, you know, like Chet Baker. Right. I mean, there's probably a beautiful balance to the two of those things. You it's know, true. My studio neighbor mm-hmm. in graduate school, I remember he would listen to Chet Baker a lot, and he was beating his paintings with a chain dipped in paint. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Kind of a nice balance. <laughs> there, that is a nice kind of balance. A nice balance. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's it's interesting the combination. So, and I also wanted to touch on quickly um, curating and how oh, what yeah. that means and like how that has entered your. Well, have you done it for a long, long time or? No, I've just I um, I've been working at the drawing center and I uh, co-founded a um, program for artists called Open Sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, with Nova Benway, mm-hmm. who, who is a real curator, trained <laughs> as such. Um, but the Drawing Center has always had artist curators. Yeah. I mean, I think since the 70s when it opened. And um, uh, everyone loves the Drawing Center for that reason, right. because it always um, was an open door for us, you right. know, so that you, you could, you know, without introduction, could enter, you know, could could make an appointment and, and I did it right yeah for the first I think the first art quote unquote art world interaction that I had was, yeah you know applying and getting a I, I guess it was an interview I don't know where you go in and talk to someone at the drawing center exactly exactly and then you might get a show right. so um, and I guess you know that kind of um, open door was really important in the mission and um, but you know by the time I took that position at the drawing center you know there there was only one selection show which would come from these artist interviews from the viewing program and so and that happened every two years and so I was like and also that the artists once the archive went digital Mm -hmm. it doubled in size oh yeah so and it also became irrelevant like it wasn't rigorous enough and the medium like we're not medium centric any longer none of us are yeah. We just kind of, you know, you have ideas and you, you, you're not like stuck in a space, you know, but drawing and what could drawing be? So the kind of how it, I just felt really depressed by the meetings I was having with artists and the kind of expectations that they had. Like, I've been coming here for 20 years, you know, to visit, you know, to have these kind of meetings with artist curators. Like, when's my show? Right. And you're like, this is not fun. Because I don't want to be on the other end of it, you yeah. know. I don't want to be a gatekeeper, right? And um, I want to supply more opportunities for people. Yeah. So, um, so that's why you know, like rethinking what, uh, like what what is needed in the landscape, like the New York landscape for artists, and maybe it's from my experience at Skowhegan mm-hmm. and having these really rich, long conversations with friends. And sharing resources and um, just promoting each other, yeah. you know, um, as really and being invested in each other. I found, find that you know I've been in many group shows where you're like, "Hi, hi, cool work," you know, yeah, yeah. "Nice to meet you," and so it just felt like missed opportunities to have deeper conversations and deeper relationships with with other people's studio practices. So. The program is um, every two years we take, um, it's an open call for applications. And um, the first time around, we were working with 52 artists from around the globe. Mm -hmm. And this past time, 36. 
and I have to say that it's it's really um, it's the community it's it's a kind of collective conversation that I'm interested in having with people and it's like if you could like without being like a cheerleader of any sort it's like we we meet for working dinners once a month and so people can talk about process and get responses and so it's not really a studio visit sort of like we're all around the table breaking bread and we trust each other after two years and we really I feel like you know people have bonded and then we'll kind of oh let's curate a show together this is easier to do together than separately or let's invite your list of people with his list of people and you know then we have more resources so um you know along with like the artists like learning how to kind of create a larger kind of conversation around their work like creating public programming for the small group shows that they're kind of self-organizing with our help yeah. And then this one, um, every two years, we do a main gallery show where we take over the entire museum. And we, myself and my partner, um, who is now um, Rosario mm-hmm. Giraldes, um, who's amazing. So we'll curate a show in two years. So we just finished one. And so it's, you know, and that's more like we're choosing the work. But and you um, start the process as soon as you finish a show, you're starting in the next one? Pretty much, yeah. So it's either like we're sitting in in a group and kind of guiding the conversation so that, you know, we create the groups of artists who will, you know, make these smaller lab shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we'll help them kind of come up with thematics. But, uh, you know, but the conversation quickly goes in places that we don't anticipate. Right. You know, and so, and then like, okay, so then what are we doing for public programming around this? So we recently like staged, you know, the playhead. Festus, mm-hmm. you know, which is like this classical rewriting of a Greek myth of a black smith, a crippled blacksmith, with music and dancers in the main theater. And it's like, what amazing way to, to kind of fill out this idea of what uh, the show is called, What the Body Can Do. Mm-hmm. And it was a quote from Judith Butler. So it's like, that's an interesting way to kind of think about bodies in space yeah. <laughs> and, you know, about kind of protest or about agency. And um, the production was fantastic, you know. And so, I don't know, for me, I, I really like to promote other people's work rather than try to kind of, you know, you know anticipate that something is going to come for myself. Right. You know, it's just kind of easier to speak on other, someone else's behalf. Definitely. And to um, kind of just help somebody along with the conversation. And I feel like, you know, a few people have made some breakthrough works in yeah. open sessions, which, you know, I'm, I know it happened in yeah. the course of the two years. So. Doesn't it feel better? I mean, just say, I mean, doing in doing what I'm doing with this, it just feels better pushing other people. And when things happen for other people, you feel it's so much more, I think, fulfilling than just like if you get into something or like... Yeah. You're like, hey, come see my show. Or, I don't know. I, I really love that sensibility in doing that, you know. And it sounds like that's probably, you're probably getting a lot out of that. Yeah, no, I'm definitely getting a lot out of it. And it's also like, you know, like you are too. It's like you have access to the way people think about things that you're yeah. not thinking about. Right. All right. And so that's that just helps you to kind of expand your, you know, thought process in a way 
Yeah, and that's what, you know, when you go to school, <coughs> that's what you're paying for, basically, is to get all these people in your studio to give you ideas that you weren't thinking of or talk to you about things that you wouldn't have brought up. Yeah. So yeah. here we are doing it without yeah. having to pay for it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, and I guess, you know, back in the day, you know, like there was these bars where artists congregated right, right. and exchanged ideas, you know, and like... I just feel like I don't know if that still happens, you know. Yeah, no. Like when you get together with artists, it's a lot of professional stuff. It's yeah. like, where are you showing next? Right, right. Like, you know, who who's buying your work? Whatever, you yeah. know. These they're not that inspiring those right. conversations. And so how to kind of get like go deeper. Right. Without know? it being limited to seventeen uh, middle aged men in the in the East Village. Totally. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> So no, it's great, you know, because it's it's definitely like we'll have a working dinner and we'll having we'll have someone skyping in from India and Cairo mm-hmm. and North Carolina and they'll be up in the middle of the night, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like they they want this conversation right. too, and so um, and we all have come to it with different ideas. That's so, really great. Yeah, so I'm 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 really enjoying it. That's great. Yeah. So when people people who are listening to this, where can they find out? Like, what do you, do you have anything coming up specifically, or things that they can go check out, whether it's online or in sure. person? Sure. Yeah, I have a show up right now at um, Miller Contemporary. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to talk about it at great length, but I didn't. Oh no! <laughs> but uh, it's okay. Well, you know. Um, everyone go see the show at Miller, and that's on that's on the Lower East Side, right around the corner from the donut plant. Oh, I didn't know That's what that. Know. I didn't know that was Everyone. your marker. Yeah, it is. You can park or go take the train right down there, grab a donut, and then walk around the corner. There you go. I think that that's a great idea. <laughs> You're like, oh, my, my <laughs> gallery relationship is their proximity to different donut places. <laughs> that is a great donut, by the way. Um, yeah, and uh, so that you can see that. And mm-hmm. I guess soon um, there'll be a kind of large-scale project on Avenue N, on the F train, mm-hmm. um, these uh, images that are fabricated in glass that will will be up sometime soon. Nice, forever. So in the in the train stop. In yeah, there are, it's these above ground um, yeah, stations the that station. they're subway stations that they're redoing. So the yeah. they have these glass walls that are kind of illuminated by the sun. So that's the and that's on the way to Coney Island. Right? Yes, on yeah. the way to Coney Island. Yeah, I've taken that a yeah. bunch of times. Yeah, that's great. I yeah. mean that's. I, I don't, personally, I think that would be amazing to like leave a mark on the city like that, that so many people, I mean, how many more people see our work when it's somewhere like that than in a gallery? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, completely. Hands down, right? Yeah, yeah. That's so really that'll great. be exciting when it finally goes up. Cool. Yeah. And then you're like online, anywhere people can see photos or? But I do. I, I do Instagram. Yeah. Um, and Open Sessions is going to start doing Instagram nice. uh, as well on the Drawing Center site. Um, and I have a website as well. Cool. Um, Your name.com? Um, dot net. Dot net. Dot net. Dot com was stolen from me. Yeah. So make sure you don't, make sure you pay those monthly bills. Right? Yeah. Mine is taken by some tax service in England. Yeah. I don't know who took mine, but they're like, you know, wanted me to buy it back from them. No, thanks. Yeah. I'll exactly. take the net org or yeah. CA. Yeah. Relocate to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Exactly. Okay. Well, thanks so much for having me over. Yeah, thank you. It was great you. to see your studio. And, and everyone go see that show at Miller. Uh, it, the show will be up. It's called Utopia Free, mm-hmm. and it'll be up until December 22nd. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thank yeah. you. Thank you.
Sound and Vision was conceived, produced, recorded, edited, mastered, and facilitated by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find images that I take from the podcast sessions by going to the images page on the website soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find even more images on the podcast Instagram feed at Sound and Vision Podcast. If you love hearing these artists speak about their life and work, please support the podcast by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. It's also available on Stitcher and Google Play. You can even donate to help support the podcast by clicking the donate button on the webpage. The introduction and accompanying music was generously provided by Michael Lovett. Michael records as Nazca Lines and also Moonlights in the band Metronomy. The bio and outro music were provided by Sean Seymour. Sean and his wife Yoshimi are a band called Lullatone based in Nagoya, Japan. Thanks to them and also Jacob Tutu and Logan Takahashi who have also lent music to the podcast. Thanks to all the listeners who share and support the podcast. All this is done by myself without funding and ads, and it really is you all who help spread the word, and you spread it well. Many thanks to all of you and all the artists for sharing their stories and time with me.